Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Coming up on today's episode, the UN Global Compact Network's Executive Director for the UK, Steve Kenzie, provides an update on the role the SDGs are playing in green recovery discussions across the nation, in policy spheres and the private sector alike. And the Consumer Goods Forum's Director of Social Sustainability and SSCI, Didier Bergeret, and Sustainability Director, Ignacio Gavilan, talk about the importance of intersectional approaches in delivering net positive impacts across the SDG agenda post-COVID. Yes, welcome along to the 92nd episode of the Sustainable Business Cover podcast. You're listening to the voice of Ely's senior reporter, Sarah George, and I'm recording this episode at my home in East Sussex. I was really hoping to be back in the office again for this episode and having Matt and Luke along again. But um, in line with the government's new recommendations, it looks like we're going to be working remotely for a little while yet. And I'm sure that many of you will be dealing with the same situation. As you might have guessed from the introduction to today's episode, um, this episode has an SDG theme because we're marking five years from the ratification of the goals by the UN, an event which took place on the 25th of September 2015. As I'm sure most of you listening will know, the SDGs were designed to replace the Millennium Development Goals. They united 193 countries in a shared mission to end poverty, protect the planet and ensure that all people enjoy peace and prosperity. Virtually every national government has committed to the SDGs, either formally or informally, along with more than 10,000 companies and more than 2,000 investors. But the UN has repeatedly warned that the world is seriously off track and most recently has expressed concerns that the pandemic could lead to stalled progress or even steps backwards in many areas. And when I say areas, I mean both geographically and across the agenda. With this in mind, we've published a new report recently entitled Achieving the Sustainable Development Goals, a Blueprint for Business Leadership. This is a 21-page report that breaks down each goal's sub-targets, what global progress has been like to date, and how businesses can deliver tangible contributions to the agenda in the months and the years to come before the 2030 deadline. It's hosted in association with UK Power Networks and it's free to download, so if you're listening, I'd encourage you to go and check it out. In the coming months, we'll have separate reports taking a deeper dive into each SDG. The first goal is going to be Goal 9, Industry, Innovation and Infrastructure, and that report will be with you in the middle of October. But for now, I can't give too much away about the rest of the series or about that report in depth. And we should probably get going with the actual exciting part of the podcast, the exclusive interviews with our guests. As I mentioned in the introduction, our first guest is the Executive Director of UN Global Compact Network UK, Steve Kenzie. Steve, along with the help of his team, manages the Secretariat for this network of businesses, NGOs and government representatives. He also sits on the board for the global part of the Global Compact, a bit of a tongue twister, um, and he works with a range of stakeholders to ensure that their views are incorporated into the strategic and policy advice that is provided to the Compact and then by the Compact to the organisations it works with. Prior to taking up these roles, Steve was Deputy Chair at the Global Compact's Local Network Advisory Group, so it's fair to say that he's worked to drive the SDG agenda at multiple levels. Therefore, he's such a great source of insight on this topic that it was a pleasure to interview him. Without further ado, here is that interview with Steve in full. So good morning, Steve. It's so great to have you on the podcast today. Hi, Sarah. Great to be here. 
Um, and how are you? How are you, how are you keeping? Well, I, I will confess I am getting tired of the lockdown and having the, the hope of it easing uh, come to such an abrupt end. But um, I think you're better than most. I'm relatively comfortable and and very capable of, of working from home, as are my team. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming that all your team are at home at the moment and you're doing a lot of emailing and Zooming. An extraordinary amount. The it's like like with everyone it came as such a shock and our um our work was very much based around in-person meetings mm. um organizing fora where where our uh, participating organizations could come together and, and exchange knowledge and so we'd always done webinars but webinars were the sort of the fringe uh piece and the mainstay of our activity was face-to-face um, and so with the lockdown coming in, a number of factors came into play, and one being the move from everything in person to everything online, mm -hmm. but also a sense that we just needed to do more because right. people that were locked down, um, that were at home or people that had been furloughed, um, we felt we had a, a bit of an obligation to fill some of the void um, to keep the people that were furloughed engaged and giving them some way of connecting into this sort of corporate sustainability community. So um, we dramatically increased the volume of activity we were producing. Um, and so it, it has been really uh, the last few, the, the, the months of the lockdown have, have been a really heavy workload. Mm -hmm. So yes, keen to get back to some form of uh a little bit more normal but we we're also going to keep a lot of the things that we've adopted during the lockdown mm -hmm. great and i know that one of those pieces of work that you've been doing is taking up the mantle from uk ssd so uk stakeholders for sustainable development um for those who aren't familiar it passed its mission on to ungc's network in the uk um we've had them on the podcast multiple times and speak with them a lot so it'd be great to hear about what that's been like and what that means for businesses that have been trying to engage with policymakers and others on this agenda through through that channel well yes it was um an unexpected um uh, event um but we felt really that the work of UKSST was critically important and we didn't want to see that um we didn't want to see it end. I had a long association with, with UKSSD personally. I was on the steering committee um, for a number of years from the beginning. Um, a great respect for all of the people involved and wanted to do what we could to perpetuate that mission. Now, really still just getting going. There mm -hmm. are three sort of key pieces of work that, that we wanted to carry forward. Um, but oh, maybe a, a step back. UKSSD, is, uh, I think its greatest strength was that it was a multi-stakeholder platform and it was a very big tent um, and provided a forum where a lot of uh, civil society organizations, academia, as well as business um, and, and governments could come together um, because of the way it was run. Um, it was 
open to smaller organizations that might not necessarily have other uh, platforms at their disposal so readily. Um, and, and it was pretty large, uh, pretty large network of engaged stakeholders. Global Compact is also multi-stakeholder, but with a much more clear agenda that our mission is to change corporate behavior. Part of our mission, um, well, we have three pillars in our mission to inspire uh, corporate sustainability, to enable corporate sustainability, and to shape the environment in which we operate um, so that it is just easier, uh, I suppose, for want of a better word, for companies to be sustainable. So that third pillar was an area where we were actually have been fairly weak um, and in large part operated through UKSSD um, in that shaping piece. So that was something we were really keen to continue with UKSSD. So we're launching um, an SDG advocacy working group and the first meeting is going to be in October. And our hope is that that will be the, the primary platform through which we will be able to continue much of the, the work of UKSSD in that space. Um, the other pieces, US, UKSSD had a great uh, program looking at the food system. And so we've, we've got a working group that launched earlier this month uh, to carry that work forward. And we're going to be doing quarterly huddles um, around the sustainable development goals to create a, a place for um, UKSSD partners as well as, as um, members of the UN Global Compact Network uh, to come together and, and talk about um, how we can make more progress on the sustainable development goals. To the, the second part of your question about the impact on business engaging with policymakers, I, I think um, th this may even help in that regard. So I, I think that there's a, already a fairly strong um, voice calling for uh, more integration of the SDGs into uh, development policy and foreign policy for, for the UK. It's been weaker on the domestic agenda. And while UKSSD had a number of engaged businesses, not, not as many as we have, and, and I think less, less engaged. So I think by us increasing our activity in that sh policy shaping space, um, I'm hoping we will actually increase opportunities for business to engage around the domestic agenda for the mm. Sustainable Development Goals. Mm. And policy shaping is obviously going to be front of mind for so many people at the moment because this is a moment where new announcements seem to be being made all the time um, and the Treasury is having to pivot and then re-pivot and rethink deadlines um, and priorities. And in that, the government has repeatedly verbally committed to a green recovery and specifically Boris Johnson has said I'm really keen to use existing frameworks to deliver upon this and I've seen a lot mentioned about the Paris Agreement which is promising but I don't know how much has actually been said about their SDGs so have you seen that conversation coming through from the policymakers yourself? No no sadly um, I would say I have not. Um, we I, I think it's one of the, my biggest disappointments around this, the whole Agenda 2030 and the Sustainable Development Goal. Um, the, the, I guess the cooling 
from the national government. Um, under David Cameron's leadership, the UK was right at the center of the driving this agenda and in the negotiation of the sustainable development goals since then. And, and obviously there have been some other priorities, but we've not seen the kind of um, public commitments to this agenda that I think would be vital, not only in mobilizing the government, but in mobilizing the business community and, and, and society at large. If there was greater awareness of the sustainable development goals, I think we could start seeing um, much more progress towards that. It is already influencing policy making, but always it seems more discreetly than more than overtly. And uh, I, I think it's really a natural fit when we talk about building back better. Um, a green recovery is all well and good, but we can't just focus on you know the environmental issues in isolation. That the global goals provide a much more holistic framework that will bring proper balance so that as we seek a green recovery and net zero, the transition to, to net zero is a just one that takes into account the social impacts of the kind of changes that are going to be required um, and delivers the future we want. And, and you mentioned there problems with awareness and communications, and that's something that we'd seen a lot from our SDG related conversations with businesses. Obviously, I think we talk to businesses a little bit more often than the um, policy side of things. And then tying into that, something else we heard a lot was, how do I measure progress towards the goals? What are the metrics um, here? And obviously these are all challenges that need to be addressed for anyone looking to contribute to a proper um, green recovery. So do you have any words of wisdom, any top tips uh, to, to impart on that? I, I just, just the other day got a, a, a bit of a shock on the awareness uh, front, very disappointing. I, um, in 2017, we started doing a, a, an SDGs roadshow and we, we, we went and visited that year, 13 cities, and we did a workshop just to try and raise awareness of the goals and um, catalyze action at a, at a local level, we called the uh, the series was making global goals local business, and one of my slides that I I shared and it was there to, to justify the roadshow was a, a survey that had been done um, across the EU, just asking the question, have you heard of the Sustainable Development Goals you know, passed by the UN, and the UK came in dead last out of the 28 countries yeah. in the EU. Um, and awareness was in the range of 11% of the those surveyed had ever heard of them. Just this just this week, I saw another poll. Um, it had been taken conducted last year. It was global rather than just looking at the EU. Um, we weren't the worst this time, but um, awareness of the goals was only 14%. Um, so really. Over that time period, I would have hoped we would have seen much more awareness of this agenda. Now, I think if they had just been consulting with business, we probably would have seen a higher number. And, and certainly we're seeing relatively high levels of uptake amongst uh, companies within the FTSE 100. Um, there's a 
majority are re actually reporting on the sustainable development goals and talking about them, we're going to see more. Um, but I think we, we still really need that, that catalyst of, you know, a strong statement from the, the political leadership in the country to say, this is an agenda that we are pursuing and uh, smart business is going to understand it and, and start moving in the same direction. And I think we need more of that. However, just quickly, the counter argument, I'm not that bothered if somebody wants to work on gender equality and they want to have ambitious targets to achieve gender parity in their business by 2030. If they want to say that's what they're doing, I'm really not that bothered if they don't want to say we're working on SDG 5. Mm -hmm. What really matters is everything that's in the agenda. And for many, I, I think we really need to look at the, the goals as a tool. And it can be a very helpful, useful framework for mobilizing um, resources and helping to build partnerships. But whether it's done under the flag of the SDGs or whether it's done under the just purely to achieve the, the, the goals themselves, it's, it's all OK. Mm. Also, there's that feeling there that everyone can do something, but not but no one can do everything. And it's all about choosing what's most material and what you can do and just communicating that as best as as best you can. And that whole goal 17 about partnership and exactly recognizing what what you can contribute and can't and and finding partners to help you amplify. Uh, it's really critical. So before I hit the record button on the recorder for this call, me and Steve were getting a bit philosophical. Um, so I wanted to finish with a question about um, you were mentioning that you had some learnings, personal learnings from lockdown that you feel could be brought to the corporate climate movement and SDG movement. So I think that would be a nice question to to end on. And that ties in nicely as well with the collaboration piece that, that we just discussed. Yes, and I just need a, a second to remember where we were going with that. Um, you were speaking about... Oh, uh, that's right. It was about those that can. Yes, right. Um, yes, we've been hearing from we've been hearing from the government with regard to the lockdown and, and working from home that those that can should work from home um, uh, to reduce the risk for those that can't, for those that have to go in. So let's keep, you know, public transit less crowded and so on. And, and I think this is a philosophy that we need to see applied more widely across um, the whole sustainable development goals agenda and particularly on on climate and we've seen some leadership from the from the, the government on this so I think it's really uh, to their credit you know the UK is a is a wealthy country and we can afford to wean ourselves off of coal for example more readily than a country country like India can do. And so I think it's incumbent upon us as a country to show that leadership that we can do it. But I think that still is something that can be applied across all of society. If you live in a home that you own, um, why don't you have a solar panel on the roof? If you have the ability to drive an electric vehicle, um, why? You know, I think we need people that can uh, make these changes to step up and do it. There are real big barriers to people. I live in a flat. I, I have nowhere to plug in an electric vehicle. Um, it's not an option for me until the infrastructure 
catches up with the demand. But for people that have access to their own um, charging, we need them to not perhaps, uh, if a moral argument isn't enough, um, perhaps this is an area where we need to see um, some carrots and sticks coming into play, where mm -hmm. uh, perhaps a stick uh, for someone that chooses to continue to drive a petrol vehicle when they could drive an electric one, um, and then perhaps incentives for people like me, a bit self-serving, I admit, but um, <laughs> who, who have a more difficult time of, of making a, a conversion to an electric vehicle, um, perhaps sweetening the deal with, with incentives to make that, that more of an option. Um, and this runs across so many areas, um, you know, the low hanging fruit around transport, housing and, uh, and food, where individual choices can make a huge difference. Um, we need the people that can afford to live more sustainably to step up and start doing so instead of this crazy inverse relationship where the most affluent people have orders of magnitude greater carbon footprints than less affluent people. That's really, really wrong. And I think we need to build up the pressure on those um, that can to do. Well, there you go. A great call to action, I think, to end our conversation on, Steve. Thanks very much, Sarah. It's been a, it's been a pleasure chatting. Thank you once again to Steve for his time and his insight. When I was recording this call a few days back, I know I was pleased that we managed to cover so much ground in such a short space of time. And I hope you found some inspiration and advice from that talk, um, as I know that I did. If you're a regular listener to this series, you'll know that our episodes are usually about an hour long because we tend to have three separate speakers on three separate calls or in the days before COVID, three separate meetups. Um, but we're mixing up a little bit today because I was lucky enough to get two professionals from the Consumer Goods Forum on the line at the same time, even though we're all based in different countries. The speakers are the Forum's Director of Social Sustainability and SSCI, Didier Bergeret, and its Sustainability Director, Ignacio Gavilan. Together, they oversee much of the Forum's work on social and environmental sustainability, and they regularly speak to ensure that the intersections between these two agendas are considered at executive level at some of the world's biggest brands, much in the way that Goal 17, Collaboration for the Goals, demands. As I'm sure a lot of you will be aware, work to reduce the environmental impact of supply chains for consumer goods companies has faced many challenges as a result of COVID-19, and there have been social challenges too. Audits are having to be carried out remotely, for example, and some regions which are well known for their provision of commodities are unfortunately lacking in water, sanitation and health infrastructure, meaning they're acutely exposed to the pandemic and need targeted specific support. In our talk, Didier and Ignacio outline some of the steps the forum is taking to address these challenges and the ways in which policymakers and individual businesses can provide additional support. They also provide some key learnings around SDG-related communications and engagement, which we know has been a common challenge for so many ED listeners and readers since 2015. I could speak about this all day, but I think that's enough of an introduction from me. So here is that talk in full. Well, thank you both so much for joining me on today's podcast. How are you both doing? Doing well. Very well. Yep. Doing well. Yeah, and thank you for lining up your timings. I understand we have calls in today from France and from Spain. 
Correct. Yeah. Correct. Fantastic. Well, it's really good to get you both on at the same time. I really appreciate it. Um, between you, I, I'm sure that you're covering projects that are relating to if every single sustainability development goal, which is why I thought it would be great to get you both on for the podcast. Um, I don't think we've had either of you on the podcast, though, so it would be good to hear a little bit more about each of your roles and remits and what projects you're um, on at the moment. Maybe if I could ask Ignacio first. Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> so um, I'm, I'm assuming the, the audience knows well the the Consumer Goods Forum, but this is an organization that brings together retailers and manufacturers from across the world. And what you need to remember is that it's CEO-led and it's focused on uh, positive change through collective action. So we take the SDGs very seriously, and particularly in my case, I'm now in charge of uh, two um, work streams that we call coalitions of action. Uh, one is on food waste, which is a um, uh, a critical issue for the industry, of course, and then uh, the issue of plastics, plastics in the environment. And I will um, I will elaborate a bit more later, but that's basically um, what I'm leading uh, these days. Mm -hmm. Great. And how about yourself, Didier? Well, similarly to Ignacio, uh, of course, working into implementing the SDG agenda, uh, I'm dedicating myself to the issues of uh, human rights and social sustainability. So we have a coalition that is dedicated to that. Uh, I'm also working on the Sustainable Supply Chain Initiative, which is about ensuring that all the uh, supply chains worldwide do abide and respect some uh, international criteria that we develop at industry level to guarantee social and environmental compliance. And last but not least, I'm recently in charge now of our Forest Positive Coalition, uh, which is about making sure that uh, we are be becoming forest positive businesses and that every actor along the way is upholding this commitment of making sure that, you know, we only use deforestation free product mm -hmm. and we are effectively uh, making forest uh, positive for the future. Mm -hmm. Great. And I wanted to dive a bit more into the sustainable supply chain initiative with you because the SDGs are global. Supply chains are a really big lever for businesses to maximise their contributions here and their opportunities. But I know that managing them sustainably has been a really big challenge um, with COVID just logistically. So what has it been like working on, on that initiative in the in the past few months? So um, the SSCI, so the sustainable supply chain, is less about logistics, which have been effectively a great challenge, but it's really about working and environmental conditions at uh, worker sites. Mm -hmm. And um, so what has been challenging is that technically to ensure compliance, uh, most of our members rely uh, partly on audits that, you know, allow to effectively get a snapshot of what are the conditions on the ground uh, in any sourcing countries or region. And the problem with COVID is that it's been impossible to effectively go on site. So you can mm -hmm. always rely on interviews and uh, remote assessments, but obviously for many questions, it's impossible to assess any given situation without being on site. Uh, if you think about issues of harassment or issues of you know, labor abuses, you would not be able to uh, assess that from a simple, um, you know, desk-based review. So that's why um, there has been a lot, a lot of things evolving, uh, notably uh, industry members discussing the possibility of doing partially remote assessments 
that would allow to already uh, assess some elements that you can find in any typical code of conduct related to working or environmental conditions. But the view is that this can only be partial and that we still need to find ways to go on site and make sure that things are all right if we want to effectively deliver on social and environmental compliance. No, I've definitely spoke to a couple of companies in recent weeks that have said it's been really challenging to change our site visit um, calendar and to work especially lower down the supply chain without going there directly. But this stresses the importance, I think, for everyone to effectively develop greater and stronger ties with their suppliers. And it's beneficial for all, you have a stability of supply, you know them better, and so there are less chances for them to effectively behave in an, an, an acceptable way. And so uh, I think that COVID effectively showed that in terms of stability of supply, in terms of making sure that things are done all right, having, having really good ties with suppliers and developing this relation of trust on a long-term basis is one great way to cope with certain crises such as the one that hit us badly and is still hitting us badly actually. Mm. I think for a lot of businesses and for a lot of individuals the situation has shown how everything is connected, interconnected. It it should have been obvious in the first instance um, but it's pretty obvious that nature risk, risks elsewhere and economic risks elsewhere are closer to home because everything is so globalised and this has led to theories about the green recovery, about changing the discussion, about creating a new normal. Is is that something that you're seeing in the discussions that, that you're having? Yes, I mean, I think that like this has shown that things needed to be considered and perceived differently. Everything is interconnected, yes, but what does it mean? If I look at social sustainability aspects, one thing that has been crucial, I think, in the realization thanks to the pandemic is these essential workers, those who cannot effectively work from home because they don't have that privilege, but also they could not work from home simply because if they were to, we wouldn't be able to fed ourselves. So it's very important, I think, to realize that everything from healthcare to retail to farmers, all of these people that allow for our society to effectively function they were the ones that were in the in the front line when it comes to the pandemic and i hope that everybody discovered this feature and realized how important they are and effectively questioned now how we are rewarding those workers when it comes to uh, their working conditions because technically uh, it's always the most <clears throat> also the least paid that uh, get to do this work that is clearly essential uh, for us to simply survive in crisis like the pandemic we've been through and so that's where I think and I hope that this perception will effectively and that we can really reward essential worker for the essential work they do. And Ignacio what have you been seeing on the environmental side of, of the discussion and of actions? Yeah so if um, you know a few reflections on this if you look at China for example the lockdown and, and some of the other measures resulted in 25% reduction in carbon emissions. It may have saved about 70, 70 to 100,000 lives over the months of the pandemic. So I've seen many other positive impacts on the environment, including governance um, system controlled investments towards more uh, sustainable energy and many of the other goals related to environmental protection. If you look at the European Union, um, a seven-year 
one trillion budget proposal, most of it uh, towards spending for climate-friendly um, expenditure. The outbreak has also provided cover in the negative and for illegal activities such as deforestation mm. in Africa, um, and it hinders some environmental diplomacy efforts. It is some sort of economic uh, fallout that's with a slow investment in green energy technologies. What we do, I've seen, for example, in the case of food waste, small-scale farmers have been embracing digital technologies as a way to directly sell produce, um, more community-supported agriculture, and direct sell delivery systems. These methods, I think they have benefited smaller online grocery stores, which dominantly sell organic local food. So I think there has been pros and cons, as TDA was, was pointed out. And I have, I have to ask, because it's something that always comes up when we talk about the SDGs. Do you actually use the goals when you're talking with members and with other stakeholders? I know that some people use use the logos very clearly and use the goals very clearly, but others just go along with this, the general ag agenda without outwardly using the framework. I think there's uh, pros and cons for both. I think the SDGs provide almost the social contract for us. All of the companies have made commitments to specific SDGs. We touch on probably all of them um, uh, across the CGF. If you look at health and wellness, if you look at uh, data management, food safety, and of course what DDA and I do on environmental and social sustainability, we touch on a lot of, of the SDGs. Some companies have made specific commitments. Um, if I look at food waste again, SDG 12.3 is the one we look into. But overall, SDG 12, responsible consumption, um, is one that is critical for, for retailers and manufacturers. So we're not an agency implementing uh, UN SDGs, but indirectly, we do lots of work in favor of the SDG agenda. Didier, did you have anything to add on that question? Well, I think that uh, technically, yes, as Ignacio said, we, we cover uh, directly or indirectly a lot of the of the SDGs. Uh, personally, like uh, I effectively uh, work a lot on providing decent work for all, which is uh, sustainable development goals number eight. Uh, we work also on protecting the planet through the Forest Positive Coalition. Uh, the idea is effectively also to make sure that we contribute to ending poverty in all its forms, and that's number one. And throughout everything we do, what we try is to effectively improve the conditions or at least mitigate the impacts. And I think that the, what the pandemic has shown is that it is important to think about mitigation first place and remediation when things like such pandemic happens. And so it's very key that, you know, we are all being hit by an economic crisis. So of course it has impacts on local businesses, but think also remotely, all these businesses that feed the planet, all these farmers in remote countries, we need to make sure that, you know, we have established long lasting partnerships to guarantee that they can also still be getting uh, the remuneration for the work they do and that orders do not drop drastically when such pandemic happens. So it needs to be balanced. And I think that this is where the SDG could be an excellent driving force only if they are understood and apprehended and effectively enjoyed by the entire population. At this stage, I think that uh, they've been really, really good uh, in terms of promoting a new agenda 
for the world a couple of years ago. I think that lately I've heard less of the SDGs, probably because the uh, deadline to meet them is 2030 and many other things come to the fore and people think of other things. I think it would be a good time now to re-promote them, especially in the light of the pandemic. Uh, the post-pandemic era should remind everybody that, you know, thanks to the SDGs, we could as a world probably cope better with such things that may reoccur very soon in the near future. Mm. I think both of you touched a bit on how there have been positives and negatives to come out of this situation and the ways in which the world as a whole is going to recover very much remains to be seen. Even though there are some strong examples of best practice, there are also a lot of examples of worst practice going on on too. So from, from the initiatives that you've been leading, it'd be good to get your takeaways on what you think businesses could do now to make sure that we come out of this in a better place rather than reverting to old systems or getting erased at the bottom to try and restart the economy? Um, well, from from my um, perspective, when I look at plastics, for example, obviously given some of the health concerns, single-use plastics are back. So I think there's a need to educate the consumer, for example, on fruits and vegetables. If you wash it at home, it's it's actually much better. Those are the sort of things I think retailers and manufacturers need to do. Um, I, I think I have a hard time with this because the um, uh, the public is demanding safety as as number one priority these days. So it it will be complicated. Companies want to do the right thing when it comes to plastics. We've all seen those images of turtles and with plastics floating. I think we have a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to reverse that. The, um, some of the initiatives that we're leading now on, on reducing plastic and um, redesigning the fundamental redesign of plastic packaging. So that will be one. Food waste, <clears throat> funny enough, the, uh, the pandemic, the, the household food waste has come down because everybody's at home, because everybody is taking care of expiration dates but on the contrary at the farm land was, um, there's more difficulty to get uh, workers in some areas in some producing areas i think we need to be vigilant of those the good thing is that we're in a sector that keeps selling we're not in in you know if we were in hotels or hospitality or airlines they're really suffering with this retail manufacturers keep selling and they well, that doesn't mean the profit goes up because the expenses have gone up. So the, the actual net profit hasn't really changed in many instances. But I think we have a tremendous opportunity here to influence things on food waste and plastics. I think we need to really have a good narrative in these topics to the public um, and make sure that things like single-use plastics are understood. Um, and and we don't we don't take three steps back. Great, and that's a lot of advice there for the for the sort of consumer facing for the public facing actions that businesses can take. Didier, did you have any takes on things that could be done um, could be done internally or upstream? Yeah, technically I agree with everything um, Ignacio said. If I take it from a social perspective, as I was saying before, I think that reminding ourselves that essential workers were on the forefront and that we should be thankful for that is key and that's consumer education as well. I think consumer education should also uh, 
target, you know, some of the, the images we saw uh, about people, you know, piling up toilet paper or pasta or products that, you know, they wouldn't need, or at least, you know, now they have a safe storage of all of these products for the next three years. I think solidarity is key. And I think this pandemic showed us that we needed to make sure that we are all in this together and that we shouldn't like overbuy or buy things that are not necessary and then get delivered home uh, while this gets delivered by people who take the risk to deliver us those products. So everything needs to be considered as essential. The people that work, the products we buy, and this element of understanding is for me a real, real thing that is needed for the new normal not to be rooted onto old habits because Again, uh, we're all in this together and socially, a solidarity works better than thinking individually. I also feel that, um, and it's not yet too much on the media, but I think that the, the pandemic has also shown a light on, on the need for us to understand that if we continue deforesting, we may effectively uh, develop new zoonotic diseases mm -hmm. that be transmitted from animals to human. And that is key. And so, as said, there is a mitigation element here, which is simple. We should halt deforestation right now and make sure that we value forests for what they are and what, you know, if they stay as is, would avoid us facing. And so there is currently in the news a lot of uh, issues around fires in, in the Amazon, uh, which are uh, being generated to develop more agricultural land. I think that not only do we need to be aware of this, do we need we need to be aware of what it could generate in terms of negative impact and try to make sure that you know we can still provide the opportunity for farmers and smallholders to effectively enjoy a revenue from one of the production but not at the expense of forest because technically that would be at the expense of humanity and um i think that all of this together from the pandemic perspective we are now seeing a lot of evolutions you know in the way we walk outside wearing masks the way we see shops, now you have plexiglass in front of each cashier, uh, the way we interact with people. Uh, I think that we, of course, need to take stock of these and make sure that the ones that are very useful remain and that we think of new ways of organizing ourselves as a society. But I also seriously would like to make sure that we get back to this solidarity idea. The lack of social interaction for kids, for us as workers, not seeing my colleagues on a regular basis has also impacts. And so we should praise those moments and make sure that we can get back to it while maintaining a level of protection that should be granted to everybody uh, throughout the planet. Great, I think we've covered so much ground there. Um, so there's plenty for everyone listening at home to think about with all of that. So thank you both so much for your insights, but I think that's all the questions I have. For... Excellent, well, thank you very much for your time. Thanks a lot. Thanks once again to both Ignacio and Didier for their time. We recorded that talk when there was a huge thunderstorm over where I live, so I was hoping that it wouldn't spoil the recording purely because we had so many topics to cover. I'm sure that there are learnings from that talk to be had by anyone who is working to join up the social and environmental agendas on their organisation, and if you're listening, I'm hoping that's you. It's somewhat of a shorter episode this week, so I hope you can forgive me for saying that we are nearly out of time. I have just a couple of things to flag before I sign off. Um, so firstly, as I mentioned before, 
we're now hosting the Blueprint Report for Business Leadership on the SDGs, which can be downloaded for free. You can find it by heading to ed.net on your phone, tablet or laptop and clicking Downloads in the horizontal bar at the top of the page. Whatever stage your organisation is at with embedding the goals, we hope that it will be of practical use. Um, it has really broad, simple explainers on the SDGs, as well as specific case studies and up-to-date stats on each goal. Also, if you've enjoyed today's episode and need a bit of vocal company while you're working remotely, there are 91 more waiting for you wherever you get your podcasts. Specifically, we have platforms on SoundCloud, Spotify and iTunes. Um, follow us on any of those and you'll be the latest to know about our next episodes too. Next month, we'll hopefully be bringing back the Net Zero Business podcast, the spin-off from this series where we take a deeper dive into a specific strategy for achieving carbon neutrality or net zero. Other than that, I can't give too much away, so you're going to have to stay tuned in October. Until then, um, stay safe, stay well, and it's a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.